that he that is in you is greater than he that's in the world. Let me hear your hands this morning. We're launching a new series this morning called The Resilient Church. The term resilience is a word that has gained popularity and proliferation in a variety of different disciplines and different um, applications. Where I first became exposed to the concept of resilience in a church context was at Trinity Bible College and Graduate School when Dr. Paul Alexander shared with us that Trinity Bible College is one of a few Bible colleges left in our nation. And that it wasn't enough for a Bible college to be sustainable, it needed to be resilient, and then began to share with us what that looked like. And I began to think about the concept of resilience, and I believe that the church of Jesus Christ should not just be sustainable, but should be resilient that he's coming back for a church without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. I believe that we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. I believe that greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. Come on, someone help me this morning. I believe that, but also believe we have to walk in it, not just profess it. We've got to live in a place where this concept matters to us. So what is resilience? I'm gonna take a little bit of time to talk about the concept was reading um, an article by Captain Pierre Wanaz, a senior advisor of a software company that analyzes flight data because resilience is incredibly important in aeronautics. The term resilience originates from the physical property of material to absorb energy when material is deformed elastically. Now, how many are following what I just said? The whole idea is pressure and stress comes that can deform the wings of the plane and can that plane then respond. Webster's Dictionary says resilience is the capacity of a strained body to recover its size and shape after being deformed by compressive stress. And that concept is being used not just in aerodynamics, but also in psychology, business, engineering, ecology, and disaster studies beginning in the 1970s. In essence, resilience is defined as the ability to successfully adapt and respond positively to difficulties or other adverse conditions. That is so good. I'm going to read it again because I don't think you heard it. Resilience, in essence, is defined as the ability to successfully adapt and respond positively to difficulties or other adverse conditions. How many of you have ever had an adverse condition? Oh, wow, I wish I lived where the rest of you live. Let's try this again. How many have ever had an adverse condition? And how many of you in an adverse condition have at least one occasion where you didn't respond positively? We, ought, we need to move into that condition. Some of you remember in 2009, Captain Chesley Sullenberger's ditching of U.S. Airways Flight 1549 Airbus A320 on the Hudson River in New York after a bird strike on takeoff. How many of you remember when it landed in the Hudson River? 
What was fascinating about that is that the crew needed to adapt. They had to be able to figure out what part of their checklist was going to be valuable in the next two minutes. You see, it didn't matter at that point that they did everything right that was on the list. It mattered that they did everything right that was needed in order to survive. They were not paralyzed by this unexpected event, which was one that they were not specifically trained for. Wouldn't it be wonderful if everything negative that came your way, you could be trained for? Do you know how many pastors have written articles or books about what they didn't teach us in Bible college? But rather adapted procedures to meet the challenge. So here's a slide to kind of give you a visual of what resilience looks like. So the orange is a non-resilient system. The dotted uh, blue is a resilient system. So both of them hit a shock event. Now watch the orange line. It absorbs the shock, begins to recover, and adapts. But you notice that it continues less than where it started. It continues with a less... Um, effective moving forward. A resilient system will hit the same shock event, will absorb it in a shorter fashion, and the impact of that recovery time will result in that institution or system continuing on at a higher level than what was experienced before. That really should characterize the church. Peter describes it this way. These trials have come to you so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though it be refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Why do trials come our way? Why do struggles come our way? Not to lessen us, but to equip us at a greater level of service, to purify our faith and make us stronger. That is the definition of resilience, that when we face a difficult time, we will respond to it in a biblical and spiritual manner, and the end result is we will fly higher after the shock event than we were flying before. That's what should happen. So you have to ask the question, what makes a church resilient? What makes a church able to respond to the moment, to adapt, to become stronger, to become more effective in the process? And that's the series we're going to explore over the next few weeks. But we have to start here with this concept. There are some things that lack resilience. And things that lack resilience in your life either need to be changed or eliminated. And unfortunately, spiritual people tend to lose resilience the longer they journey in their faith. Unfortunately, we tend to become more rigid. We tend to become less flexible. We become more certain that there is one way and one way only to get the job done. So if you are a rigid, narrow-minded, judgmental believer, my prayer is that you'll hit a shock moment that you will have to absorb. Hallelujah. Jesus talks about some things 
that are not resilient that we have to deal with. So the message this morning, if you care, and most of you this won't matter to, is not an exegetical study, but it's an applicational devotional approach to the text. I'm not suggesting that the text directly says these things, but I think there are principles, applications that can be drawn from the text that will help us. And we're going to talk for a few moments about nets, boats, bottles, and rags. Things that have to be moved out of the way if you're going to develop resilience that will enable you to fly higher after the shock event rather than flying lower. You have to understand that old nets will break. Old fishing nets will break. The Bible says in Luke chapter 5, When Jesus had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their nets break or were beginning to break. Listen, the nets that the fishermen had began to break under the load of divine blessing. Wouldn't it be wonderful if God would so overload us with blessing that our ability to contain it would be stretched to the limit? We talk about wanting revival and the blessing of God and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and most believers really don't want that. We just want what we have to continue on and get a little better, but we don't want it to stretch our capacity. This event happened before Peter and John were called to be disciples. Jesus is speaking to a crowd. And in order to be heard, he asks for a fishing boat and moves out on the lake. And how many of you ever fished on a lake? How many of you know that that's a natural amplifier? Been on a lake and all of a sudden you say something that will bounce across the water to someone on the shore or in another boat. It was a PA system before they had to pay for him. In fact, I'm thinking that we should get rid of all of our sound equipment and just put a big lake in the middle of the auditorium. And as he's speaking, we find out that Peter... And John had been fishing all night and caught nothing. (laughs) That wasn't like when I go fishing and I don't catch anything, it doesn't matter because I can go to high V. (laughs) But if there isn't a high V, that's your livelihood. They're living dependent on catching fish. Now I want you to think about it for a moment. How many fishermen do we have in the room? Or women, fisher people. I don't know how to be. All right, hold, hold up your hands. And how many of you would consider yourself to be very proficient? <laughs> Got one? You're afraid, aren't you? You should be. You should be very afraid. Proficient fishermen. I mean, I know how to wet lures and drown worms. But how many of you are, are you proficient over here? Yes? No, no. Okay. All right, well, let's just go on to the next point because this isn't going to work. But think of something you are proficient at. Let me do it this way. If you are a fisherman 
and I walk up to you and you know that I have never cast a lure or been in a boat and I tell you how to fish, how many of you want to throw me in the lake? Right? I am sure Peter is thinking, what does this rabbi know about fishing? We have fished all night. We are the experts. We're commercial fishermen. We know what we're doing. And you, Mr. Rabbi, are going to tell us how to fish. I don't tell you how to teach. Don't tell me how to catch fish. Do you know what that is? It's rigidity. It's a lack of resilience. It's as though you already know the answers and are unwilling to consider a source because you don't respect it when God might be speaking in a way that you need to listen to. And so they cast out their nets and it is a catch of fish beyond what they had ever imagined. One of my favorite fishing stories, I I just wait for opportunities to preach on fishing so I can tell this, but I have a friend that is an amateur scuba diver. And he was scuba diving in a lake in Iowa. And there was an old Iowa fisherman out on the lake in his boat with his fishing hat and the hooks and the lures. Picture that, you know, and he's fishing. And they're under the water in the lake and they can see there are no fish around him. And so they look and there's another part of the lake where there's a bunch of fish. So imagine you're an Iowa fisherman by yourself in a boat and two scuba guys pop up in front of your boat. That's when you dump the beer into the lake. (laughs) And they said to him, sir, there are no fish where you're fishing. But if you'll go over to that part of the lake, you will catch an abundance of fish. And then they zip back down under the water. And he didn't move. I'm sure he thought aliens were about to take him away. They, they stayed under the water and watched. When he didn't move, they pointed at each other. They grabbed the anchor and drugged the boat over to where the fish were. At that point, I'm throwing myself in the water saying, oh Lord, I'm a sinful man. They respond. And because they did respond, whether they believed or not, Because God is going to show them something that their current tools of their trade are not sufficient for the task that Jesus has prepared for them. Now think about that. What are nets? Nets were the tools of their trade. Every one of you in here has a ministry calling. God has a purpose for you to serve in some capacity. And I want you to think about what that service for God looks like to you and what the tools of your trade might be. You might be a teacher who studies teaching notes and communicates, giving, which involves money and investment, resources and stewardship, hospitality, which is serving, sharing, cooking, and inviting. You may have a ministry of a variety of sorts, but to do your ministry, you have to have tools to do that ministry. I don't know where they went. I remember, I like tools. I've got a bunch of tools. I have systems that help me prepare to preach. And I don't know what you think, but I do believe it's important to prepare before you preach. I don't believe in open your mouth wide and God will fill it. I've heard some of those sermons. 
And in the first church I pastored on a Saturday night, I'd studied during the week. I had nothing. Pastor Tim, you ever been in there where there's nothing? I got nothing. And nobody cares that I've got nothing. I still have to preach on Sunday morning. And I'm in the auditorium and I said, God, I, if you're wanting to test me to see if I stay here all night, I'll call my wife. I'll stay on my face all night till you give me something for Sunday morning. And I heard God say, you can stay here all night if you want, but I'm not giving you anything until tomorrow morning. You have to know that for me, that was terrifying. I had three verses of scripture. Began to preach that morning. And all I can tell you is as I preached those verses, it began to make sense. And they knit together. And, and God moved in that morning. And afterwards I said, God, please, don't ever do that to me again. What, what do I need to learn from this? And he said to me, you're relying more on your tools than you're relying on my presence. And I don't care how homiletically sound you are, how much hermeneutical work you've put into the presentation. There are times where you need to set your tools aside and let me expand your hearing because it's more than preparation. You need a greater ability to hear my voice. And if you ever rely on your tools more than you rely on me, I'll put you right back in this spot. I'm saying to you, you have a ministry calling. You have tools and God wants to break your nets. He wants to expand you. Well, this is the way I do it. And we're not willing to change. Yesterday's tools won't meet today's challenges. You see, in Scripture, nets had to be cared for. They had to be washed. They had to be mended. They had to be taken care of. But I'm absolutely convinced that if a church is going to be resilient, we cannot depend on the tools in our belt. We have to depend on the God who created the tools and look at ways that he will expand those. Again, first church we pastored was in an Amish community. And I found it interesting in an Amish community um, what they would do and not do. And I'm not criticizing them. They had, it's the only place I've ever bought, Sharon, that I've ever bought an apple pie that tasted like kerosene from the ovens. It is wonderful. Because you're required to put more ice cream on it. <laughs> and, and one day I'm out at one of the Amish stores and I'm sitting there, now watch this. On one side, the Amish are harvesting corn. On the other side, a, a normal farmer is harvesting corn with an eight row combine. And I'm watching, I'm amazed at the artwork of the Amish people that are gathering up corn, ear at a time, throwing it in, ear at a time, and throwing it in. But then I'm watching the combine, that before they do a row, the combine's done half the field. There was a time, listen to me, that the buckboard and the horses were the only way to harvest a field. But that day passed and some people didn't move with it. 
Are you hearing me? God wants to expand your tools. And then when they couldn't contain the hall, the boats began to sink. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that their boats began to sink. So if the nets are the tools of your trade, the boats represent your occupation. How do you know they're fishermen? Because they have fishing boats. And again, what is your ministry calling? There are vocational gifts in Ephesians 4 that are intended to equip the saints to do what? To do the work of the ministry. That's not just the job of the staff. It's our job to try to help you and equip you to do what God has called you to do. In Romans chapter 12, that's prophesying, serving, teaching, encouraging leading, showing mercy, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers in Ephesians chapter 4. So whatever your occupational gifting is, whatever your calling is, not just the tools, but the fullness of your trade, God is showing to these fishermen his power that those who had been fishers of fish would become fishers of men and that their fishing boat would now become a pulpit for ministry that God wants to take you in the context of your service to do something for the kingdom. You're not where you are just to collect a check. You are where you are because God has a purpose bigger than that. Some of you need to change your fishing boat into a fishing pulpit. God's blessing just might sink your boat. He's changing them. God's abundance can be a, an incredible load to carry if you're not equipped for it. For example, let's talk about the lottery which is what some people hope will be God's abundance for them. Now, the truth is, if you don't play, you can't lose. But winning destroys people because they get an abundance that they are not equipped to handle. That principle applies to the blessing of God. When you want an outpouring or a blessing of God to be poured out on you, you've got to be ready for it to sink the old boat that you've been in. There may be some stretching. There may be some growing, not just in your tools, but in everything that you do and everything that you're engaged in. Do we want revival? Do we want an outpouring of God? Do we want the Spirit of God to bring in men and women, boys and girls to faith in Christ? Do we want to see this church grow? Then maybe it's time to change change our boats. The occupations we're in, in a spiritual sense, may need to grow and become bigger than they currently are. You need to see yourself as one God wants to use. What do you do when it gets too big for you? Call for help. Their boats weren't big enough. So bring more people in as long as you aren't trying to limit the moving of God. Bring more people along. Ministry isn't always neat and tidy. Why are you saying that? I want you to see connect groups as your boat and the lesson plans and what you do as the tools that God may want to make your boat bigger or get more people involved. So here is the death of connect groups. The death of connect groups is I want to keep the same group with me all the time for the rest of my journey. That is not resilient. What is resilient? God, grow this connect group bigger than I can handle. God, let someone meet you tonight.
God, let healing take place in this house tonight, in somebody's life. God, this is a boat. Let it be my pulpit. Let it be my place. And why can't we start to believe that every connect group would double in size or triple in size and you would raise up a leader that then would take your group and you'd say, well, we'll split it in half. Oh no, why don't you get a bigger boat? Give someone your whole group and do a whole brand new one and fill it up and give that to someone else and then start from scratch and build a whole big new one. We don't do that because our boats are too little. Our expectation is too small. We're satisfied with church as it is and I'm praying God sink our boats give us a harvest that's too big for us to carry and force us to find new ways to reach people for the kingdom because we can't contain what he's doing in this place this is comfortable this morning everybody has a seat on the boat and we ask questions well what if it grows what are we going to do it is such an intoxication to be satisfied with what's comfortable. Why not begin to pray, God, do something that makes us uncomfortable. Give us a big enough harvest that our boat begins to sink and we have to cry out, come over and help us. God wants to break your nets. He wants to sink your boat. We're reaching people, not fish. <laughs> Can I meddle a little bit? Let me give you a real world example here at Berean. We are, are, we are perfectly structured to get the results we're getting. And if we want different results, we're gonna have to change some things to get there. We say we wanna reach the world I'm not sure that all of us do. I remember praying, let me back up. I remember before I came to Berean, when someone knew we were coming and said, I've always wondered why Berean hasn't taken stewardship for the apartments that are next door to them. And I didn't know the answer to that. And we began to pray that God would give us a harvest from the apartments. And so kids began to come. And some of you will remember that summer where every other week almost there was a squad card. There were fights. There were problems. There were difficulties. And I heard, wasn't any of you, but I heard some saying, if, if we're going to keep reaching those kind of kids, I'm not putting my kids in that environment. Your boat needs to sink. Come on, someone help me now. Come on, I said, someone help me now. Your boat needs to sink. The police chief met with me and said, I want you to stop having those kids coming to your church because they're having fights on the way in and on the way out. And I said, you need to look me in the eye. Those kids need an answer that they don't have. And their only hope and their only help will be found in Jesus Christ. And there's no way under heaven we're gonna stop them from coming in the building. You can put more police officers here. You can patrol the parking lot. You can search their backpacks but I'm going to do everything I can to bring more of them in here so that they can find Jesus. Oh God, sink our boats. Sink our boats. 
if we want the same boat we've always had with the same people we've always had, with the same ministry we've always had, we'll hit those walls and we'll be less than we were before. Third, old bottles will spoil. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 17, the Bible says this, Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, and the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. This is Pentecost Sunday, and in almost every commentary you'll read that the new wine that Jesus is talking about is this new dispensation that he was bringing in that would be launched with power, with the power of Pentecost. He asked the questions, why don't your disciples fast? And he said, because it's a new day. And after talking about the new wine in old bottles and new wine in new bottles, what happens? A ruler immediately approaches him whose daughter has died. A woman touches him who's had a bleeding ailment for 12 years. Two blind men come to him and are healed. And a demon-possessed man is brought to Jesus. What does this mean? That's why we need the new wine. Old wine won't meet today's need. There's a fresh outpouring. It's called Pentecost. And I'm not interested in counting how many people speak in tongues to put on an ACMR. I'm saying, would to God, he'd create a hunger within us and we'd say, I've got to reach my neighbors. I've got to touch this world. It's bigger than I am. There are needy people that need healing. There are dead people that need to be raised. There are demon-possessed people that need to be free. And I can't do that in my own strength. I need some fresh wine. I need a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit in order to meet the challenges that are all around us. You say, well, I've never prayed in tongues. I'm just telling you, go deeper in the Holy Spirit. And I will promise you, if you spend time in your private closet of prayer and say, God, release that new language out of me so that I can step into a new realm of intercession, there'll be a day that he will do that. It will flow out of you and you'll find a new power and new wine. But here's the problem. You can't put new wine in old wineskins. You're the wineskin. You're the wineskin. And if you don't keep your inside fresh, you will pervert the outpouring of the Spirit. The new wineskin. Cranky, worldly, critical believers defile the wine. The vessel will break and the blessing will be lost. God is not going to take a fresh outpouring of his spirit and put it in old believers who haven't experienced anything new in God in the last 10 years, haven't had a fresh touch or a new revelation or God speaking to them. And my prayer is, God, make me a vessel that can contain the new wine. Cleanse me on the inside. Don't let me become bitter. Don't let me become rigid. Don't let me become stale because the new wine can't stay in that vessel. This is a new day. This is a fresh moment in God. I know I touched him last Sunday, but I want to touch him this Sunday. I know it's with me yesterday, but I need him tomorrow, so I have to experience him today. I need a freshness from God every day of my life. Yesterday's manna will have worms, and the fresh wine in an old wineskin will be lost. 
Give us something fresh. Make us new every day. Is your relationship with God fresh and new or is it stale and boring? Well, I come to church. That's exactly what I asked you. Is it fresh or stale and boring? Again, and you're going to hear this pop up from time to time. I'm finding a number of young people raised in Pentecostal charismatic churches that are leaving charismatic Pentecostal churches. And one of the number one complaints is this. You, 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 you preach something you don't live. You talk about the power of God to heal, yet it never happens. You have formulas. One plus two equals three. And yet it never comes to pass. And you're stuck in your old models. There's got to be a mystery to God. There's got to be a recognition of the sovereignty of God. And they're tired of our old bottles of formulas that don't work. But would rather experience a place where people say, I don't have all the answers. And I'm not here to explain God. There's a mystery to be entered into. God, give me a fresh vessel a fresh touch give me fresh eyes to be able to see old bottles will lose the fresh wine yesterday's relationship with God isn't enough and fourth old garments will degrade No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch will pull away from the garment making the tear worse. What do the garments represent? Garments represent who you are. The clothes you wear represents the person you are. We communicate something to the world by the clothes that we wear. If you are a Vikings fan, you will not wear a Packers shirt. The way you dress communicates to the world around you. And I know that that's changing, but I have to tell you, what you wear communicates something. So let's talk about that for a moment. Can we? Because that's always a sore spot. I wear a coat and tie on Sunday morning because those are the people that are going to heaven. Uh Uh-oh. I guess it's time for the service to end. (laughs) I was going to have you come up anyway for this illustration. I have never acquired a coat and tie on the platform. But I come from a generation that if you're a Christian, you dressed up for church. Why do I do this? Because I was raised with a mindset to communicate something. If I were going to see the governor... If I were going to see the mayor, if I were going to see someone who was important, I would dress up for that moment. And then ask the young adult, why do you dress so casual for church? They said, because we're tired of having to dress up. We want a God who's with us every day. And I don't have to put on airs in order to come to church. Now watch this. I don't care why you dress the way you do. You just need to know why you dress the way you do. And I have no right to tell you you're wrong, then you have a right to tell me I'm wrong. We're all communicating something. And I'm totally comfortable. You can talk to the worship team, the staff. There are a few lines, there are a few lines that I've drawn. I don't want you going to the hospital wearing shorts and a tank top. 
There are some lines, but can you see the point? The way we dress communicates something. Just know what you're communicating, and I'm good with that. Okay? But there's a bigger issue, and that's the spiritual clothes that you wear. What are you communicating? Now listen to me. Some of you (laughs) have worn your same set of clothes for way too long. You're wearing the same religious clothes you wore 30 years ago. And you can look and say, well, this wore out and got a hole and I put a patch here and I put a patch here and I'm trying to pray a little more and I'm giving a little more. God isn't interested in you patching up your old garments. He wants to give you a whole new set of clothes. And this morning is an opportunity for us to come into that moment of a freshness, of a whole new set of clothes. We need new garments. In John chapter 13, Jesus got up from the meal and took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel to wash the disciples' feet. Some of us need to change our clothes so we can serve others. Your wealth is rotted. Your moth, moths have, have eaten your clothes, it says in James. And on and on it goes with wearing a, a presentation that isn't you. He wants us to put on the garment of praise for the spirit of despair. But when you're only praising him on Sunday morning, you've got a patch. I know in today's, this story doesn't work real well because we pay extra for patched clothes. That's it. (laughs) But some of you need a whole new set. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Some things are not resilient. Some of you, some of us, if we move forward right now, our nets would break, our boats would sink, our bottles would break, and our clothes would have patches. So I'm saying to you, can't we ask God to take out of our lives the things that are not resilient, the stubbornness, the rigidity. It's gotta be a certain way. I'm gonna give you one more story and then we'll sing. I'm trying to stop. I had the privilege of being at a ceremony at Garden Gate Ranch when the governor was there to sign new legislation. It was a a great opportunity. And I got talking to one of the legislators who was a child of God, loves Jesus with all of his heart. And I said, tell me how you came to faith in Christ. Because we have it that you, and I've had people say, well, you don't give an altar call often enough. You need to have people raise your hand and come forward and lay hands on them. Your boat is gonna sink. I said, when did it happen for you? He said, I had people witness to me all of my life. But there was a Wednesday night, I was sitting in a Bible study and the spirit of God came on me and everything made sense in that morning, in that moment. And I walked out new. I'm more concerned that you walk out new than you respond to an altar call. We need some new ways, some new methods. We need some new nets, new boats, new bottles, and a new set of clothes. Would you stand with me? And let's ask God to break our rigidity and help us become resilient.
Jesus, we want to be in a place where you can make us moldable, usable, pliable, and resilient. Pray, God, that you would help our hearts be tuned toward you. And the areas of our life that are rigid and unresponsive would be replaced with a fresh anointing from you. Give us a hunger to go deeper in you and experience more in you. In Jesus' name. And everyone who loves him said, amen, amen. Let me hear your hands this morning if you love Jesus. I'm going to end with this brief observation. The church was not resilient enough to come through COVID better than we were before. Churches are smaller, church engagement is less, and there are fewer people in the church. I'm saying to you, COVID won't be the first turbulence we'll hit. It won't be the last. And if we're gonna be ready when he comes, we've gotta be resilient enough to respond. Do you know that when they test airplanes, they make sure that those wings can bend a full 90 degrees without breaking and be able to return 
so that it can navigate the turbulence and the storm. God, deliver us from being rigid and make us resilient. Amen. God bless you. Shake someone's hand. Encourage someone today.